Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. My name is John Hartgen, ABI's Public Affairs Officer. As legislative measures throughout 2020 were aimed at providing economic stability to meet the challenges brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic, December saw a flurry of activity that resulted in the Combined Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. This was a $2.3 trillion spending bill that combined $900 billion in stimulus relief for the COVID-19 pandemic with a $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill for the 2021 federal fiscal year. The bill passed both chambers of Congress on December 21 and was signed into law by the President on December 27th. Within the nearly 5,600 pages of this bill were important changes to the bankruptcy code. We have assembled three experts to help you unpack some of the key changes that were made to business bankruptcy by this new law. They've spoken and written on the key business bankruptcy developments of the COVID-19 stimulus legislation over the past year and closely followed the developments in December. Guests on today's podcast include Tiffany Payne Geyer, a partner in the Orlando office of Baker Hostetler, and Tom Salerno, a partner in the Phoenix office of Stinson LLP. Your host for today's discussion is ABI Legislation Committee co-chair Ferve Khan, an associate in the New York office of Baker Hostetler. And now I'd like to turn the discussion over to Ferve Khan. Go ahead, Ferve. Thanks, John. Uh, in this program, we'll be exploring the Consolidated Appropriations Act, uh, as it's been known, the CARES II Act. It amended the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which is known as CARE, the CARES Act. CARES II gave new life to the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a now familiar forgivable loan program administered by the Small Business Administration that provided economic relief to American businesses since the early days of the pandemic. CARES too was intended to help companies continue to pay their employees through the economic downturn, including by offsetting employee benefit costs. CARES too also made significant changes to a debtor's ability to assume or reject a commercial lease and gave landlords and suppliers certain protections from preference actions. CARES too has been received as a welcome extension of economic relief, but leaves open several questions for debtors. In this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Paycheck Protection Program, changes to the commercial leasing provisions, and changes to the preference provisions. We'll also be briefly canvassing other legislation that was introduced late in the last congressional session that intended to reform the bankruptcy code. We'll be focusing on the business bankruptcy provisions in this podcast with consumer provisions to be examined in a subsequent program. I'll now turn it over to Tom to unpack the Paycheck Protection Program. Tom, what are the features of this program and how did it expand upon and improve the existing loan program? Thank you, Ferve. Well, whether it improves it really is a question of perspective, but let's just put this in a little bit of context because I think in order to understand CARES Act II, we need to understand how we got there to start with. So if you really think about it, 
this really started in the fall of 2009. We had the capital markets meltdown of Lehman Brothers and the government said, we're gonna inject money into the economy in order to stave off some widespread financial collapse. And so the government in that time did the Troubled Asset Recovery Program, which was called TARP, and it had a whopping price tag on it of $600 billion. And at the time in 2009, everyone was stunned, $600 billion. And really what they were trying to do was trying to shore up companies because these companies had uh, investments in real estate and Lehman Brothers was a huge meltdown. And it primarily hit balance sheets, if you will, because overpriced real estate suddenly lost value. And so everyone wondered what happened to their 401k balances, to the extent they were invested in different funds that had, had real estate backing. So then that seemed to have worked out pretty good. And then February or March of 2020, fast forward, there's this funny sounding virus, which somehow creeps into public consciousness. And we all learn coronavirus and COVID-19. I don't know about you, but I was very wor worried that I missed COVID-1 through 18, but I figured I'll go with COVID-19 here. And we all looked at this, and I know this is true for most people. They said, oh, how serious can this be, right? You know, it'll be gone in a couple of months. We'll all laugh about it over a beer. Well, now we're about 10 months in. And so what has happened and what has the government's response been? Well, there was a huge economic ripple effect as a result of COVID-19. And you have to know the ripple effect in order to see if the law in fact addressed it. But as a result of the immediate shutdown of numerous businesses, we didn't have a balance sheet crisis like we did in Lehman Brothers. We now had a P&L crisis because it immediately hit cash flows. And when you think about that, about businesses being completely shut off, what you really wound up with was what I call a race to the bottom. And let's just take a very simple example. You have consumers who lost their jobs. You're a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant, you lose your job. Why? Because the restaurant can't be open and hotels had to shut down and airlines and all this stuff. And so as a result of that, their consumers aren't spending. They cut back their spending. The businesses that sell to consumers are now finding their cash flows are getting dramatically and materially impacted. And so they run short on money. Well, these stores and businesses have their own debts that they have to pay, not the least of which is their rent because most stores lease their premises, their suppliers, things of that nature. And so as a result of their P&L crisis, they're going to start, for example, deferring on payment of rent. The landlords who own the building, of course, have their own creditors. They own they money on the building. And so when they're not getting money from the tenants, they can't turn around and pay the debts that they have. Some of those lenders to the landlords have their own set of creditors. So you know the, the, uh, the image of the big fish eating, eating the smaller fish and eating the smaller fish. You can see how this is kind of starting to become a race to the bottom. And so what you eventually have is a spiraling, which could have catastrophic effects to the economy. So again, the difference between Lehman Brothers, a balance sheet crisis, and this COVID-19, which is a P&L crisis, was stark. And I think most of us weren't, I'm sure most of us weren't prepared for it. Although the COVID crisis will eventually become a balance sheet crisis because eventually it's gonna to lead to the revaluing of, of a number of, of properties. So 
putting that into somewhat of a perspective, we have CARES Act 1, which is late March of 2020. And this is the thing that John had talked about, and it introduced the U.S. to this concept of the payroll protection program. We all call them, of course, PPP loans. And they allocated $349 billion, $349 billion, and the entire CARES Act stimulus package was $2.2 trillion. So it was three times the amount that the TARP program was that we thought was extraordinary for its time. And amazingly, the PPP program money runs out in about two weeks. Literally, it's gone. It's completely exhausted in about two weeks. So that $349 billion just doesn't go as far as it used to go. So what happens is they come up with CARES Act one and a half. I call it CARES Act one and a half, which was the Payroll Protection Program and Healthcare Enhancement Act, which was April 23 of 2020. So a month later, they come up with CARES Act one and a half. And what they do, they find another $310 billion, which we're now going to use for PPP loans. So that's a good thing, right? That loan, that program is set to expire on August 8th of 2020. Everyone assumed there would be at a third enhancement, extension, call it what you will. And in fact, August 8th comes and goes. People are fighting politically over what should be in this package. And, and, and whether there should be a package, because remember, we've already now got, oh, about $660 billion, which has been just for the PPP program. And what would happen is between August 8 of 2020 and December 27th of 2020, there is no more, there is, there is no more program. And so on December 27th, what we had was President Trump signed into law this CARES Act II program that you're talking about, the CARES Act II program is another $748 billion of stimulus, of which there's another $284, $285 billion of new PPP loans. So that is context. So Tom, did CARES Act II take care of the problems of the CARES I program? Well, again, fair question. And the answer is an unequivocal yes and no. Under CARES Act I, although the, the statute itself is silent, the SBA and Treasury, Department of Treasury and their infinite wisdom decided that no debtors, no debtors would be eligible for a PPP loan. If you think about the concept, I'm gonna get money to this, to this population that needs it, this constituency that needs it. They decided they were going to exclude all debtors. And the basis for that, which is gonna become important in just a moment, is that it, they made a determination that people that were in bankruptcy, people or companies that were in bankruptcy would in fact be an unacceptably high risk of misuse of the money. And if they didn't use the money correctly, what winds up happening is it doesn't get forgiven, which means it's ultimately gotta be paid back. And so to put it simply, the SBA and Department of Treasury said debtors are deadbeats, they cannot get any PPP loans. So everyone was looking when CARES Act II comes in and says, come on, what about this? It was a subject of a lot of discussion among professional groups, certainly on the Hill, everyone was talking about it. And what is it that they did? Well, in CARES Act II, they say that any debtors who are operating under certain code sections, and you have to understand the code sections in order to understand what it is that they did. Because at first, everyone looked at this and there was this great joy throughout the land, which is, hey, now debtors are finally eligible. 
But when you parse through the code sections, you realize that at the end of the day, there's only certain debtors that are eligible under the CARES Act too. Tom, can you tell us how this might help hospital debtors? Well, let's talk about who it's gonna help in general and then we'll talk about that. The way CARES Act II was written is the only debtors that are eligible for PPP II loans are those debtors in subchapter five. So debtors with a debt limit of seven and a half million dollars, debtors in chapter 12, family farmers and fishermen, and chapter 13 wage earners. They will all be eligible for PPP II loans, CARES Act II loans. Aren't hospitals going to typically exceed the debt thresholds? And therein is the problem, Tiffany, because most hospitals will exceed that loan amount, the $7.5 million subchapter five. And so while everyone was talking about the importance of supporting those on the front lines of healthcare, Congress, which went back and forth on this issue, Congress decided we're going to leave them out. And so the reality is, unless you have an incredibly small hospital that will meet the $7.5 million debt threshold, they are not going to be eligible. But there's something else that is really extraordinary about CARES Act II that even those people in subchapter 5, chapter 12, and chapter 13 cases uh, were rejoicing about, and that is what I call the mother may I clause. Because also buried in this 5,000-page piece of legislation, and it is literally 5,000 pages, is a provision that says that this provision about debtor eligibility only kicks in if the SBA gives its written consent to make this law effective. So what you wind up happening here is that everyone assumed at least we have some debtor eligibility. And when they started reading again into the fine print, they realized that we are waiting now to see whether or not the SBA will give its written consent in order for this law to become effective. I can tell you from December 27th to now, we don't have written consent. So let's just take a quick look at what the old position was. The old position under the Trump administration was the so-called April 24th interim rule, which then became a final rule. And this was the rule that I had said, I had referred to earlier, that said that the Secretary of the Treasury and the SBA had determined that debtors in bankruptcy were high risk. They were too risky for us to lend to. So you're thinking, well, that was April of 2020. Come on, that's old news. This rule was republished as, or as recently as January 6th of 2021. Notice January 6th. So again, try, prior to the change of the administration. So what's the new regime? What's going to happen? We know we have a brand new Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who was confirmed on January 25. The nominee for the SBA administrator is Isabel Guzman. She's not yet been confirmed because they're working through cabinet positions uh, in order to get her confirmed. But here's what President-elect Biden said at the time. He said that his team of candidates will help us emerge from the most inequitable economic and jobs crisis in modern history by building an economy where every American is in on the deal. Every American. Now, I don't know about you, but I want in on the deal. I'm an American. I want in on it. So what about the change in position? Will the Secretary of Treasury and the SBA give their consent to this? 
if we look at Janet uh, Yellen's background, if we look at Isabel Guzman's background, these are both people with long, long histories in public service. Uh, Janet Yellen was with the uh, Federal Reserve for years. Isabel Guzman was with uh, California uh, Development, Economic and Development Group. You would think these are people that would say, let's not punish debtors because the concept of you need to be in financial distress, but not too much financial distress, because if you're in too much financial distress and you're in bankruptcy, you suddenly are, are not in on the deal as, the, uh, as, President, as uh, President Biden has, has mentioned, under those circumstances, that's what's, that's what's going on. So what's gonna happen? That's anyone's guess, but it hasn't happened yet. And for people in subchapter five and chapter 12 and chapter 13 that need this money, well, this new law is not effective yet and everyone is waiting with bated breath. We shall see. Many thanks, Tom, for that background. Tiffany, could you talk a little bit now about the changes in the act to non-residential leases in bankruptcy cases? Yes, Fervey. Uh, among other provisions, the act makes significant changes to a debtor's options for handling non-residential leases and rent. Under 365 D4, previously, Chapter 11 debtors had a maximum of 210 days from the petition date to determine whether they wanted to assume or reject a non-residential lease of real property. The act temporarily extends this time for 90 days, providing debtors a total of 300 days from the petition date to decide whether to assume or reject. So this is an extensive period of time, just two months shy of a year, which is a significant increase in the time period for a landlord's uncertainty about what the debtor intends to do with its lease. In terms of subchapter five debtors, they now have an additional 60 days to cure their rent defaults for up to 120 days if the court finds that the debtor is continuing to experience a material financial hardship due directly or indirectly to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, these extensions don't last forever. They do sunset in two years in December of 2022. Uh, in addition, it's important to note, nothing is free and these extensions of time are not free. The lease payments during these extended time periods are treated as administrative expenses under 507A2. If the lease is assumed. So Tiffany, given that background, what do you think will be the effect of these changes in pending tenant debtor bankruptcies? Well, Ferve, it depends on when these bankruptcies became pending. If they are commenced before the date that is two years after the enactment of the new law, they get the benefits. So in other words, cases that were filed after December 27th of 2020 will see these benefits. Well, that's interesting. So it's a matter of timing. Yes. So given that, how do we expect the changes to alter the negotiating dynamic between tenant debtors on the one hand and their landlords in chapter 11 on the other hand? Do you think it would give tenant debtors additional leverage? 
Possibly. Now that tenant debtors under non-residential leases of real property have a much longer time to decide whether to assume or reject a contract, landlords might be willing to make a deal to modify a contract prior to assumption for terms somewhat more favorable to the debtor if the debtor agrees to make the decision prior to the extended time period that the code now affords. So a landlord may be willing to trade a few dollars for greater certainty and an accelerated assumption timetable. And speaking of making deals, the law has also changed to offer some benefits to landlords and suppliers of goods in the form of changes to bankruptcy code section 547, which governs so-called preference payments made within the 90 days prior to bankruptcy. The new law now affords protections to landlords under leases of non-residential property and suppliers accepting payments in the 90 days pre-petition if they agreed to payment extensions due to the pandemic. Under the Act, these payments will not risk waiver of an ordinary course defense if certain conditions are met. Now, if a landlord or supplier enters into a pre-petition agreement with a tenant or a seller of supplies, and the agreement does not provide for payment of fees, penalties, or interest greater than what the lease or supply contract originally provided for, then the landlords and suppliers are somewhat insulated from a demand for return of these funds under 547. So this is like a reward from Congress to suppliers and commercial landlords who have agreed to work out terms with tenants and customers purchasing supplies who may have fallen into arrears and aren't paying in accordance with contract terms. Now, if uh, commercial landlords and suppliers of goods accept uh, temporarily, you know, if they accept on a temporary basis late payments or payments in smaller amounts or at irregular intervals, they don't have to be concerned that they're going to lose their ordinary course of business defense under 547C2. So this is an acknowledgement by Congress that the meaning of ordinary course may involve attempts by business people to work together in a pandemic to come to alternative acceptable terms. Tiffany, when I, I hear you talk about this altering of the negotiating dynamic uh, while it's certainly great for, for tenants, on the other hand, property owners are the ones that are being uh, asked to wait and wait and wait, and I get that they're given some protections, but do you think that this could cause, maybe as an unintended consequence, uh, a flurry of filings by property owners who themselves can't pay their debts because they're not getting tenant money? It would not surprise me, Tom. The landlords typically always have mortgage obligations. Um, and as a result of tenants defaults, they may need to seek bankruptcy protection in order to restructure those obligations. So it certainly could result in an uptick, uptick in uh, landlord bankruptcies. Thanks so much for that background, Tiffany, and for the, those questions, Tom. I wanted to turn now to a quick bird's eye view of some other legislative activity uh, that we saw at the end of the last session of Congress. We, uh, me and my uh, co-chair on the legislation committee, you know, toward the end of the year, were, were a bit surprised we saw one new bill come in, then another new bill come in, and this kind of robust legislative activity right at the tail end of Congress. You know, we put our heads together, and you know, what what is what is the idea behind this? 
And we had thought potentially that the Democrats were setting out their agenda for the 117th congressional session. If so, we can potentially expect these bills to be reintroduced in the new session. I'm gonna talk about three bills quite briefly. First has already been passed into law, the Bankruptcy Administration Improvement Act. The second is the Protecting Employees and Retirees in Business Bankruptcies Act of 2020. And the third is the Bankruptcy Venue Reform Act of 2019. Starting first with the Administration Improvement Act. This was passed into law quite recently on January 12, 2021. It extended temporary judgeships, reduced quarterly fees owed by chapter 11 debtors to the United States trustee's office, and for, for the benefit of chapter seven trustees, provided additional compensation. So a long awaited raise for chapter seven trustees. It did not change some of the temporary judgeships into permanent ones as the judicial conference had suggested. So perhaps a, an additional act on temporary judgeships is something we could expect in 2021. Turning next to the um, Retiree Benefits Act, the Protecting Employees and Retirees in Business Bankruptcy Act of 2020, which is called the PERBB for short, was first introduced in September 2020 in the House of Representatives. It had two purposes. It first sought to address perceived shortcomings in the bankruptcy code's protections for employees and retiree benefits. And secondly, it certainly it sought to curtail the use of bonuses and special compensation arrangements for executives in ban bankruptcy cases. The bill introduced a slate of fairly ambitious changes. It provided for greater direct compensation for employees and retirees in Chapter 11. For the same crew, it provided for a sort of priming lien on the debtor's collateral in, in light of their claims. It also required that the confirmation process or a plan of reorganization include consideration of the impact of reorganization on employees and retirees. And most controversially, it expanded limits on executive compensation, which had been in place already under Section 503C of the Bankruptcy Code. Since it was introduced, the bill raised some concerns that would, it would increase the complexity and duration of already complicated and prolonged confirmation proceedings. This is particularly so for smaller businesses, which may not have the, uh, the runway to get to a confirmation proceeding in the first place and would benefit from a, a quick confirmation process. Reading the tea leaves a little bit, similar bills have been unsuccessfully introduced since 2007. The history doesn't bode very well for the for the fate of such an act in the upcoming Congress, but time will tell. Lastly, I wanted to briefly discuss the Bankruptcy Venue Reform Act of 2019. Venue reform was first introduced in February 2018 in the Senate. It died. It was introduced again in, in 2019. So the year before last year. So the purpose of this bill was to curb perceived forum shopping by debtors. So currently bankruptcy venue rules allow a debtor to file in any state where an affiliate resides. These rules tend to favor Delaware and New York as venues for a chapter 11 proceeding. Under the act, a corporation could only establish venue 
in districts where its principal assets were located for 180 days before the filing, or the district where it maintains its principal place of business. So in effect, restricting where a debtor can establish venue to where it has its principal assets or its principal place of, of business, making it perceivedly more difficult to manufacture venue by establishing um, an affiliate in a preferred venue in anticipation of a bankruptcy filing. Last year, venue reform picked up a little bit of steam. My co-chair and I saw organizations pushing it early in, in April last year as part of coronavirus relief, a bit surprisingly. Purportedly, venue reform would be, would be valuable to address a, a coming tsunami of filings. Venue reform also has some political teeth. Um, it appears to be popular for senators and representatives outside of the favored districts. But the long history of the bill suggests that a similar bill will have some hills to climb in the upcoming Congress. It looks like we're about reaching the end of our time for the program. A quick note here about the Legislation Committee. Our role is to monitor legislative activity relevant to bankruptcy and bankruptcy debtors. We work with John and other folks on the ABI to track this legislation, digest and analyze it uh, as it comes across our desks. My co-chair Beth Stevens and I have had a very busy couple of years. We expect 2021 to be another banner year for bankruptcy legislation. If you're interested in learning more about the committee, please feel free to send me a note through the, my contact information on the podcast page. John, many thanks for this opportunity. I'll turn it over to you to conclude. Thank you all for such an enlightening discussion as there were quite a few important provisions for business practitioners to take note of. Be on the lookout, as Ferve said, in the near future for an ABI podcast spotlighting the changes made to consumer bankruptcy law by the Act. But for now, thank you to our guests and to our listeners for tuning in to this edition of ABI Podcast. This and more than 200 others can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Have a great day and stay safe.